Welcome back to What's on Your Mind. I'm Dr. Gene Bresson. And I'm Dr. Steve Schlossman. And we're child psychiatrists at the Clay Center for Young Healthy Minds at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Here's what we'll talk about today. Today we're going to be talking about family dinners. That's my favorite meal. And um, we're fortunate to have Dr. Ann Fischel, who is Director of Family and Couples Therapy here at Massachusetts General Hospital. She's also come out with a new book that's called um, Home for Dinner, Mixing Food, Fun, and Conversation for a Happier Family and Healthier Kids. And it's uh, coming out this January by Amicom Press. She's also co-founder of the Family Dinner Project. And if you want to go to the website and check it out, just Google the Family Dinner Project. Okay, so. You know, that title, say that title again, Gene. What was it? <laughs> it was long. The, what title? The book or the book? Yeah, the book, the book. The book. Home for Dinner. Home for Dinner. Mixing food, fun, and conversation. Okay, okay I'm just going to stop us right here, okay? Um, because I'm, I'm all for this, and, and, and Fischel and I, we, we go way back, and it's great to have you here. Thanks. It's great to be here. I'm trying to imagine food, fun, and conversation with my 9-year-old my 14-year-old who are going 10 billion different directions every single night – all want to eat something different. They barely got time to do anything, let alone eat. I so miss the days when I was a kid, and and it actually wasn't enough for discussion. Like I like we sat together. It wasn't even like. But something wait, but we wait. Did you about. talk? I mean, I had the same thing because growing up in the fifties, dinner was at six o'clock. My dad, who was a dentist, was home. My sister and I, and we were called for dinner. And we came down and we sat at the table every single night. Yes. Yeah, so I grew up in the. 70s, as you know, my dad ran the conversation. So it wasn't as if there was a back and forth. My dad would ask a question. We would answer the question. That was kind of the way it worked. And actually, interestingly, we had two dinners. We had six o'clock when my mom fed us. And then my dad got home around eight from the hospital. And then my mom had us all sit down again where he ate like pot roast, whatever he was going to eat. We always got scrambled eggs or something like that. But we never questioned. We didn't know any different. So now I'm I'm so intrigued by Annie's book. I can't wait to see in January, in part because it's going to tell me how to get back to this thing some of which I miss. I miss sitting with my family and talking, especially in the evening at the end of the day and sort of discussing what happened. So well, start there. Well, before we get too nostalgic um, about family di- dinners of yesteryear, um, I would say that the vision I have is that this is not your mother's family dinner. That No, uh, no pot roast? N- well, it could be pot roast, but we're probably eating a little lower on the food chain And women are working in big numbers, and there's nobody home to be cooking that pot roast all day. Kids are much busier than they were 30, 40 years ago, so we've got extremely hectic schedules. A lot of young families don't even know how to cook. So, you know, these are the major problems and challenges that modern families face. So what to do about this? I want to just say a couple of things about why it's worth it. I mean, certainly we all have wonderful memories of family dinner, but there's a whole body of research now that links regular family dinners with so many benefits that I sometimes feel like I should just hang up my shingle as a family therapist and tell the families I see, don't waste your time with me. Just go home and and cook and eat together, starting with the mental health benefits, which include lower risk of depression and anxiety and teenage pregnancy and substance abuse and better nutrition, lower obesity, fewer eating disorders. 
even kids who grow up eating family dinners grow up to be less obese and to eat more healthy as young adults. And then there are the cognitive benefits. The conversation at the dinner table turns out to be a better vocabulary booster than even reading aloud to young kids. And kids who have regular family dinners do better in school. So that's the wow of the why yeah. of, of the, and the wow Absolutely. of family wow, dinners. Yeah, but, yeah, I feel um, like I should be using bigger words when I sit down yeah. with my kids. <laughs> well, but, but I, I, I'm concerned about two things. Yeah. One is scheduling. Yes. And how we actually fit this time in, mm-hmm. in such a crazy, busy world. And the second one, which we'll certainly discuss, is how you initiate conversations uh-huh. with kids. Because, you know, I remember the old Art Linkletter book, you know, where'd you go? Out. What'd you do? Nothing. Well, you know, that's normal for many kids. Sure. And so... Let's start with the schedule. So how do we fit these times in together when everybody's doing a gazillion things? Right. Well, for starters, we have to eat. So that's we've got that going for us. It's not like it's optional. And it turns out that the family dinner is the number one time of the day that families still have to talk to one another. It's not like we garden and play instruments. Well, you may play instruments, but um, or quilt on the front porch and, and tell stories. Family dinner is really it, followed by carpool, which seems to me like a much worse alternative. So we have to eat. The average length of a family dinner is 22 minutes, which doesn't seem like all that much time to get average. such a big bang. Yeah, it's like a sitcom. Right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. Absolutely. And the scheduling, I think there are a lot of ways around that. You know, some families prefer to have a regular family breakfast. Um, That may work better for certain schedules. Or to really load up on the weekends when schedules are more under people's control. Brunch. Or even brunch, right. Or even to have a a homework break at 9 o'clock and to make a ritual out of that. Everyone turns off the computer and meets at the kitchen table and has hot chocolate and fruit. So it doesn't have to be dinner. And it doesn't have to be every day either. It doesn't have to be every day. I mean, what we say at the Family Dinner Project is, you know, we meet families where they are. And if families can set one night a week to meet, that's great. You know, the, the research really targets five dinners a week, but no researcher has looked to see could four dinners and a brunch do the same thing or maybe three dinners and it's catch as catch can the rest of the time. So, and Does it have to be the, like the same day every week or? Not at all. Is no. there anything, I, I can imagine there might be something in favor of kind of it being predictable. Like, right, like, rituals, because yes. rituals are very important in families and, and, and we all have certain rituals. Right. So maybe making this one into some kind of a ritual that everybody expects. So right. there's an expectation. Yes. You can anticipate it. It's got a beginning, middle, and end. It's got a boundary around it so technology doesn't intrude. TV is off. I mean, these are some of the qualities of a ritual, but it could be around any meal. And, and you said something really important earlier. You, you mentioned stories. Mm. So, so it, it's not just sitting at the table looking at each other. Right, right. right. Like, I like me, to say you, you, you can hate to cook and still love family dinner. That food is what brings families to the table, but it's the conversation and the stories that keep us there. So stories, again, stories, uh, the family dinner table is the main place that I think families still tell stories to one another. 
And there's a body of research that suggests quite strongly that kids who know family stories grow up to be more resilient, to have higher self-esteem, to feel that they are part of something bigger than themselves. And um, so I encourage families to tell stories about love stories, about work stories, stories about times that they had faced some adversity and pulled something out of that adversity. So these kinds of stories are, are quite inspiring to kids. Not too many of them, you know, not too many stories all at one dinner, but sprinkled judiciously. And it's true. You know, I was wondering how we initiate the conversations. I'm just thinking back about my kids, and they love to hear stories about when I was younger or or my parents when they were younger or my grandparents. Like, where do we come from? Right. And sometimes those narratives can actually get them intrigued, thinking, and asking questions. Yes, absolutely. And kids, I think, love to hear stories about what you were doing when they were the age they're the same at. Age. Yeah, uh, because they're basically self-centered. They don't want to hear. They don't want to hear. Well, when I was your age, I walked through ten feet of snow to get because those kinds. Of, that, right. They don't want to hear yeah. a lecture. Right. Or they don't want to hear a, a, a. You know, when I was your age, I did as if it were a command. Right. They want to hear something about your own life that's very personal. Is right. That right. Yes. And, and pertinent to their lives. Exactly. I think young kids love to hear, mine anyway, love to hear animal stories, um, Mm -hmm. stories about the turtles I had and uh, the uh, dog that my father flew from a plane when he was stationed in the Galapagos during World War II. Wow. I like to hear that story. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he built a parachute. It was the first dog to ever parachute from the air. Wow. Um, He was they were pretty bored in the Galapagos and but World War II. <laughs> but, you know, all these are great, but how do we get kids to talk? I mean, it's so difficult to get yes. teenagers especially. Um, so one technique or one question that we, uh, the Family Dinner Project, ask when we have community dinners and we bring 10 families together and we cook together and we initiate different conversation starters and we tell stories, one of our go-to conversation starters is to ask each person at the table to tell a rose and a thorn and a bud about their day. And it's an equalizer because the grown-ups do it and the kids do it. So a rose is something great that happened during the day, something that was funny or got you excited. A thorn is something really challenging or difficult that made you unhappy. And a bud is something that you're hopeful about that might happen tomorrow or next week. And that's a that's a nice variation on how was your day. Steve? Well, I was going to say, I could see how that could yield um, a lot more material and a lot of thorns, too. I, I guess for yeah. that matter, as I think about my, my teenager, you know, as she begins high school and, and comes home and has kind of one thorn after another about the various ways that teachers are kind of getting under her skin. But then it's an opportunity for my wife and myself to talk about when teachers got under our skin and what you do in those circumstances. And, right. But to walk that tightrope, because you don't want it to be a lecture, as we pointed exactly. out. We'd rather it be a, a discussion. Right. And I think as, as parents of teenagers, it's important that parents find a story to tell that is self-disclosing, but that resonates with whatever that thorn is. So if your daughter is telling a story about a teacher who was really unfair, that you have a a story that you can call up about sometime that you felt you really got the short end of the stick. 
when you were a kid or maybe well i mean today fortunately at Mass for me no one's ever been unfair to me ever in my in my whole no there's plenty of stories there's opportunities everywhere you know the other thing i want to ask you is i so i i as, as you guys know i have a 14 year old and a 9 year old uh-huh. really different really different kids temperamentally but they're also just different developmentally by definition one's sure. 9 one's 14 so often the nine-year-old doesn't quite follow where our conversations go, and then she starts to look a little despondent, and we mm-hmm. try to bring her in. And so mm-hmm. I'm wondering, actually, I think you may have answered it, this thorn, bud, rose thing. Mm-hmm. That'll make sense to her. That's a metaphor a kid can get. Yes. And she can tell that in her own terms then. Right. I mean, if you looked at the, the website or, or in my book, there's a many, many other examples some that are geared for younger kids, some for older kids, and some that are just across the board. One of my other favorites, which I do with the residents, is to ask each person to tell two things that are true about them and one that's a tall tale. And then everybody has to guess which is the thing that's not true. And that gets the conversation well, going in some interesting, interesting <laughs> Just to be ways. clear for the, for the listeners, when, when Dr. Vassell says residents, she means the people who are in training to become uh, psychiatrists and child psychiatrists and, and psychologists. Um, but, yeah, that's, that sounds really fun. It sounds like the show Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but they, it is fun. And it yeah. is fun. So, so making it playful, yes. making it interesting, and there are things that cut across developmental lines. I mean, you know, we all like to play board games, and whether you're 9 or 14 or 23 or I won't say my age, but I will, you know, over 60. So, I mean, it, it's fun. Yes. So you want to make it fun. Now, another thing, another you give a number of tips in your book and on your website. One that really kind of got me was – Playing with your food, because I was always told, you know, don't play with your food. You know, it's kind of like right. don't talk with your mouth full. Right, right, right. So what's playing with your food so, about? So playing with your food is a kind of a an idea that stems from the my observation that we don't get a chance anymore to really use our hands. Our our lives are so virtual, and cooking. And eating, smelling the food and touching it, this is one of the few things that's left to us to do where we're actually handling tangible objects. And so I I went sort of riffing on that and thinking of all the different ways that we can play with our foods. So there are a bunch of examples. One, again, that we do at the community dinner is to put out a whole array of salad items bean sprouts and carrots and avocados and so on. And we ask each person to take a plate and to gather what they want and then to make a face out of the assembled vegetables or a truck or an animal. And the only rule is that whatever you play with, you have to eat. Um, (laughs) So I would call that playing with color. But there's also playing with memory where you think about the foods that you ate as a child and maybe you have a story that goes with it. I think of the uh, ice cream cake that my mother used to make for every dinner party. And she loved it because she could make a whole cake without turning on the oven in 10 minutes that was so elegant and sort of surprising. And I make that and I I think of her, and it just it makes me feel great. I want to go back to one thing, though, because I don't think you you defined what these community dinners are and what their what 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 their purpose is. Yes. So the community dinners are part of the uh, work of the of the family dinner project, 
which is a nonprofit group that champions the benefits of family dinner and tries to be the how if the all that research I offered at the beginning is the why family dinner is so important. The family dinner project says, yes, but let's let's see what we can do to help unlock the power of family dinners because there's so many things getting in the ways of modern families. So we do this in two ways. One, we have many, many resources online that are free that families can use in whatever way they want. And then we also go into communities when we're invited and we bring families together and we engage them in a conversation with each other to brainstorm solutions to common challenges that that community of families have. I think it sounds awesome. It's also making me hungry, so it's it's which is I think a good thing. Yes. Um, but it's not just making me hungry to eat. It's making me hungry to sort of have my family around me when I eat. And and I guess you know as we approach Thanksgiving, it's especially relevant because that's the mother that's, of family yeah, dinners. Right, right. It's the mother of all family. <laughs> dinners. But it's also it's probably the remaining place where there is an understanding that we're going to sit we're around the sit table mm-hmm. and we're going to talk. And the, you know the game may be on, but if you're lucky, you turn it off. And the, if the sound of music's on or something, you turn that off and and you eat and and you talk so i just hope this catches on like like what what are your thoughts what's your hope do you think you think this will be a thing that will come back or or kind of be rediscovered uh i think it i think it is i think it's in the process of of um you know it's you just look around at so much interest in food and people are are joining the family dinner project every day we've had We've had tens of thousands of people downloading our materials. It does seem to be striking a chord. This is wonderful. Well, I want to thank Dr. Fischel, Annie, for coming in and talking about this. And uh, I'm hungry, too, for more. And if you're hungry for more, go to the Family Dinner Project online and read our blog and send us some uh, comments and questions, and we'll, we'll try to answer them. I'm Gene Bresson. And I'm Steve Schlossman. Thanks very much.